Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. You know, we got Valentine's Day approaching. And we all know that it's another lonely Valentine's Day for me. Anyway, I want to welcome Shan Boudram, who just said her name rhymes. The host of the Lovers and Friends podcast, plus a million other things. You, like, honestly... If you're looking for sex and intimacy advice, it is hard to get away from you. Oh, that is the one of the best compliments I've probably gotten in 2022. Oh, well, I'm glad I could give it. It's only January. Well, Beginning listen, of February, you it's February. take the compliment, okay? That's, okay. Still, that's still a good solid 32 days. There you go. So I think I know what an intimacy expert is, but a sexologist and you're certified, first of all, how does one become certified and what is a sexologist? A sexologist is somebody who studies sex as it relates to biology, sociology, criminology, um, psychology, and essentially it's the study of why. So I think liken it like a sexologist is to sex, what a nutritionist is to food, not necessarily what a chef is to food. Uh, I often make that distinction because people assume that means that like I study how to be incredible in the bedroom. I may not be able to make you the best spaghetti, but I can tell you based on your dietary needs, if this is something that should be good for you. That's a great way to put it. Good. That's, thank you. that's a great way to put it. How did you get started? Cause you were a psychology major. Yeah, actually my original major was journalism. And really? so I went to school for journalism. At day one of journalism school, they say, write what you know. If you know Britney Spears, which is the time I you know, came, went to school in, you become an entertainment reporter. If you know sports, you become a sportscaster. And I was like, I think I know fucking, for lack of a better term. <laughs> I think this is the topic that I feel really passionate about. This is the area that I'm fascinated by. So I essentially started my first book, uh, while I was in college, it was called Laid, and that was an anthology of young people's experiences with sex in an easy access culture, and that came out in 2009, and that's essentially how I broke in as a, as a journalist who just wanted to tell stories and who basically was curious about their own experiences or you know lack of experiences, a la orgasms, and wanted to talk about it. And from there, I just really got catapulted as millennial sex expert, and then I went backwards and decided to make sure that I was giving proper information, and so I got certified as a sex ed counselor counselor in Canada. Then when I moved to America, you know, 2014, so some years later, I went to school and got certified as a sexologist and then got my degree in psychology and, uh, and still in school to get my master's in psychology. So the learning never stops. Your wall of diplomas sounds fascinating. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love that you describe yourself as Rihanna meets Dr. Ruth. That is very, um, and in, in in the best possible way, an interesting description. How would you describe yourself? Oh God, uh, disaster meets hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> hanging on by my fingernails. So a volcano. No, hanging on by my fingernails, trying not to screw up. <laughs> um, but I love I love that description because it fits. Did you come up with that or did someone else say that to you? No, I came up with it. Like all my nicknames, they're basically created by me. In essence, I was working with uh, my first book late, uh, not late, my second book, The Game of Desire, was about helping women to become better intimate 
daters, better attractive, more attractive and more seductive. And a major thing I found that women had an issue with is owning their expertise. So they had a hard time in conversation because when the ball was passed them to talk about a thing that they know very well, they would fumble it. And one of the main areas that people often fumble is what do you do for a living? Because that's your time to shine. You know this thing inside and out, but if you can't answer that question in a compelling way that drives more dialogue, then you miss an opportunity to showcase your greatness. So it was a formula that I created where you say, I am a, then you provide your basic job description, that, what's the inspiration? What's the why behind what you do? And then I stole this from Hollywood, right? Hollywood always says, if you're going to pitch something, you're like, it's speed meets care bears, right? And then someone's like, oh, I can kind of picture that. So the, that part is the two things that are unlikely that go together that kind of perfectly describe what you do. So it was from my formula of how I describe what I do for a living. You, you, I, I, we're, we're just a few minutes in. I'm already like blown away by how smart you are. Oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your parents must've been in for the hell of a ride when you were a teenager. Cause I'm guessing perhaps listen, you, were you on the debate team, which is always where my parents said I should have been. <laughs> I wasn't on the debate team. I was really focused on sex, which my parents weren't thrilled about. I was going to say that uh, <laughs> was that that's that's a, a gulp. Yeah, that's the part of it that I think it was difficult for them. And I was really athletic, so um, and I was on a I was in a co-ed sport, so I think that just really pulled out more sex. What did you track and field? Yeah, yeah. So so it's good because then when you were trying to slip away, breaking curfew, you were speedy about it. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, you started it because you talk about being a millennial. You started on MTV's Guide to Sex and you've written for Teen Vogue. How have the rules of intimacy changed since we were the age of the readers of mm-hmm. Teen Vogue? It's hugely changed and improved. It's improved in ways that I didn't think was possible. I think the basic anecdote I could give, especially because I focus most on women's sexuality, but when I first started, the orgasm gap was three to one for every three orgasms a man was having, a woman was having one. And now the orgasm gap is two to one. And clitoracy, which was like not a thing with literacy around the clitoris was not a thing when I was coming up. The number one question I used to get when I first began in the 2009 range was, I know I can't have an orgasm. And now I'm, it's people are pretty clear about, you know, how their women in particular, how their body works and they're better about advocating for their needs. And now the questions are a lot more complex, which makes my job harder, but also uh, makes my job really hopeful. And then I talk to younger sex experts and I'm like, wow, like there's so much more information and empowerment and agency that people have. So I think it's pretty much all been good news, except for the fact that we are in a sex recession. There was a stat that came out this year, actually, that one in four single women have not had one sexual partner in the past two years. Obviously, that's fueled by the pandemic. So there's definitely you know issues to overcome. But I think in terms of empowerment, we've come leaps and bounds. It's changed a lot in the digital age. I feel like people are less interested in having relationships. Do you find that? Yeah, statistically, I mean, the same study was by the IFS was basically saying that somehow social media has um, been a replacement for people for genuine intimacy and video games. So before I always said, I was talking about this with somebody, how I think one of the greatest aids in a sex life or an intimate life is boredom. It was me being at home, being like, I'm bored. I'm going to go out. I'm bored. What festivals are going on, right? And there's a lack of boredom because there's always something else to do and a way to tell your brain that you're engaging with people. You don't put yourself out there and it's socialized in the exact same way. And so I think that 
it's a bad substitution and probably not an adequate one. And we see the number of people, obviously there's reasons for this, but the number of people who the rise of anxiety and depression, I would probably, you know, say a lot of that has to do with the lack of intimacy we're experiencing. But to your point, a lot of people think that they don't need it the way that they used to. Uh, statistically, people still want to get married. They're just waiting longer. And statistically, people still want long-term relationships. And Dr. Heller Fish, Fisher, who I'm obsessed with, who does this study every year that's called Singles in America, said that last year was the death of the F-boy, that we are now seeing that people are actually are prioritizing relationships. And it's not this like libertine, sex-focused, casual, transactional culture that people now, especially because of the pandemic, are prioritizing actual relationships in the way they weren't before. Um, but different groups, uh, we watch Euphoria and we see something totally different. Exactly. Now, on your podcast, literally nothing is off limits. Yes. <laughs> um, one of the things I found, it was just on one of your last podcasts that I found fascinating was you addressed mental health. Mm-hmm. And you addressed mental health and how it affects a relationship and how to talk about that. What, what I mean, I think mental health, because I'm, work, I, I'm an advocate for mental health, it, it's become such a big issue. And how do you deal with that in a relationship? How do you calm someone's anxiety. How do you even bring it up? And I was on that episode asking the exact same questions because I grew up in a generation of therapy is a last resort and you don't talk about these things and you try to conceal and work through it on your own and you don't burden your partner with these. And then now this generation is like, go to therapy, talk about it, advocate for your needs, get a diagnosis, you know, like help yourself. Um, so I was there with Dr. Nedra Tawab, who's, um, really, she's a, I want to, I don't want to see she's a best-selling author. I was going to say an Instagram psychologist, which is a terrible way to describe it. She's got yeah. a very large following on Instagram. And then also too, is a, uh, an amazing therapist. And then also Eileen Kelly, who's kind of on the cusp of Gen Z, who has a mental illness and also a platform and talks about dating with a mental illness, because it is something that she said, like you have to introduce as a part of who you are, not dissimilar from your sexual orientation. It becomes a part of the fabric of your identity. And for many people, it's not something that you're waiting to go away. It's a detail of your life. And when it's a detail of your life, people need to know that about you. And so introducing as a part of the conversation, but furthermore, being like the dialogue doesn't end here. We may have to continue it often together and two, probably in therapy so that you can understand how to help me and how to be helpful together. I also love this mic drop moment that Nedra said, because I asked her, I was like, what percentage of the population has mental health issues that impact them on a day-to-day basis? And she said, 100%. Really? Yeah. And that gave me my exact response was just that. And I was like, that's fascinating. But when you think about it, right? Like the, and she was describing the different ways that people don't think of this as like a manifestation of mental health, but it is. And so it's not a conversation of like some people and those people it's us. And that's, I think what's important to bring to the mental health dialogue. How, how early can you bring that up in a relationship? It's obviously not, you don't go on your first date with someone and say like, hi, I have really bad anxiety. And if you don't continue to stay in touch with me, I'm going to have a full on like panic attack. Yeah, I'm a big fan of logical, mutual, and gradual disclosure. Um, we know when people are too much, too fast, and it's it can be overwhelming for people, number one. And number two, it's like from a psychological perspective, too much self-disclosure can turn people off and too little can turn people off because nothing to invest in. Too much can be, wow, I don't think I can actually 
respond to all the needs that you have because you seem like you're coming with a lot. So the rule of thumb I like is 15%. So you share 15%. If somebody is reciprocal and they're like, they also share in return and it's a positive exchange, you share 15% more. So maybe you don't go in with your full diagnosis, but maybe you start off with something like, oh, how was your day? Oh, today was a, you know, a rougher day for me. I had really bad stomach problems because I was really nervous about something at work. And so, you know, that was hard for me to overcome. And if the person's like, wow, how did that feel? How did that go for you? And then you're like, well, you know, I actually struggle with that pretty frequently. So it's not abnormal. Oh, and we, me too. And you know, what's your experience like? Then, you know, you start 15%, 15% until you can find yourself in that space where it feels comfortable. If the person, you know, shuts it down and changes the subject, then that's all you want to say about it at that time. Right. See, at my age, we discuss what ulcer medications were taking. <laughs> Off the top? <laughs> yeah. No, like, oh God, it's so much anxiety. My ulcer. And then they go, really? I have heartburn. What, what do you take? There you go. It went well, yeah. right? So then you know that it's you, okay to continue. You've bonded on, on, you know, stomach issues. I also was looking at your different topics on your podcast. Um, and this is just one that I'm always fascinated uh, by. Open relationship versus cheating. That's a big topic. Oh, it's a huge topic. And one that I was saying that it's fascinating because there's very few things that have as much pop culture significance and references and lack of understanding because we don't really have frame of references. Like, do you know anybody who's in a successful, consensually non-monogamous relationship? Not that I'm aware of. That's a great way of putting it. And so you probably can't list a movie that you've seen where you've seen people in a successful CNM relationship and haven't heard stories or read a book about it. So for that reason, like there's this curiosity around this thing that like nobody can actually point to like what that looks like. So that leaves all these people who are not engaging in it to fill in the blanks about what they think it is. Um, And people often get it wrong for that reason. So the point of that podcast was really to do that. The person I had on it was a straight man who was entering into the idea that he was probably not monogamous and talking about how he felt stifled in previous relationships and how difficult it was in the past. He felt like he was a failure and he was incapable of love. But now that he knows this part of himself, he feels so much more free and he feels empowered to share with people. And I was like, amazing. And, you know, the million dollar question, would you also be comfortable with your partner engaging? He was like, no, like a very quick no. And that's fascinating because there's also layers to unpack, right? Because it's not, um, because we don't have these positive examples. So that's what the episode is really about of just being like, hey, this is something new. And I know we've heard a lot about it, but we don't have a lot of scaffolding and we don't have a lot of positive examples. So it's likely that you're entering into this the wrong way and that's okay. But once you know it's wrong, what are you going to do next? Yeah. And it, it obviously is a case by case episode, but I also find it fascinating. Straight men, it, it they do not want their girlfriend, their wife, whatever, doing that, but they want the, the space too. Yes. So, I mean, it kind of, I mean, there's, I'm trying to understand the difference between that and cheating. Well, cheating is breaking the rules that we have agreed upon together. Like if we play Monopoly, you probably have different rules than I have because, you know, our house rules have been created. So we have to start the game by agreeing upon like, what do you, what happens when you pass go? Can you buy properties in the first round, right? You have to have those dialogues. And so once we agree upon the rules, even if to other people, that's not in line with what they do, it's not cheating because now we've come to an agreement. So the important thing is, and I learned that actually in that episode, that monopoly is a thing. 
where one person is open and the other person is actively choosing to be monogamous. And um, I had a consensually non-monogamous couple who are also experts on, and they were saying that, yeah, it exists. I haven't seen it work because resentment definitely enters into it, but it does exist. So in that case, it's it's not cheating, but just because it's not cheating doesn't mean that it's not unfair. I, I also think it comes down to women. It's much more emotion, an emotional connection with men. It's it, they can go off and not get um, into whatever the emotional component would be with someone. Yeah. I think you can understand your biology and hack that a little bit. Um, I think also acknowledging that women have the only known body part in the history of existence. That's only function is pleasure. So, I mean, why would we not be the ones to enjoy sex and be driven by that? And, uh, women love, uh, romance and we love attachment and we like excitement. So I think that women are very capable of having sexual relationships that are just fueled by a desire to feel something without connect to somebody, but you have to do a lot of like understanding of your body and, you know, why do I get attached? When do I get attached? And also releasing yourself of the expectation that women are supposed to get attached if they do. But um, I think that women can. I had an incredible friends with benefits. I didn't think it was possible prior, but then I had one and I was like, this is great. And I loved it. Well, I, I, I'm going to get to that. It's a lot of mental hopscotch. What's your, what's your, <laughs> for me, it's what I call it. It's a lot of mental hopscotch because I can't do friends with benefits. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's hard because I get so insecure and so, you know, and then it kicks into like anxiety and this, and why am I not hearing from them? And it becomes too personal for me. So how did you overcome that? I mean, how, how Listen, or, is it, or just do some people not overcome it? I am, uh, my friend refers to me as Shanbot. I love <laughs> processes. I love strategies. And so basically I'd come out of a toxic relationship and I knew on top of that, I'm from Canada and I was living in America and my immigration was on the fritz. So I just knew the place that I was at. I was not ready for an emotional attachment and I was not looking for a long-term partner. But at the time it was like five or six years ago, I was in school for sexology. So I was learning all these great things about sex. And I'm like, I want to practice with somebody. It's okay. I want to have a sexual partnership. That's really just that. Cause I'm just not capable of this time of providing anything else. And so I like learned that oxytocin, which is the cuddle hormone, the bonding hormone is actually released at its highest potency and after sex cuddling. It's released after orgasm in a small dose, but really it's the after sex cuddling. So I was like hard rule, my sexual partner and I were not cuddling afterwards. Also, I felt the same way that I can tend to get my ego involved when somebody gets to know all parts of me and then is only saying yes to one part of me. So I was like, you're being compartmentalized. You're not meeting my friends. I'm not talking about my hopes and aspirations with you. I'm not downloading my day with you. And we're really clear about like our thing is to come together and enjoy each other, but enjoy each other's bodies. Furthermore, I changed their ringtone to have their own ringtone so that I wasn't getting that like hit of hope every time my phone rang. It was like, oh, I only know of them if it's this chime. Um, and then lastly, I just never initiated contact ever, ever, ever. I only waited for that person to hit me up because I didn't want to put myself again in that ego position because I have an ego where I text somebody and then they take a day to respond. And now I'm like, now I got to prove to them I'm worthy of responding to. So I know this about myself. So I just devised a plan that allowed me to get exactly what I wanted out of the relationship and furthermore, to be a good partner to that person um, so that I wasn't changing expectations midway through. It, it's it's amazing that you can do that because I'm always a quivering mess like jello. 
We could come up with a plan for you and it would work. We're going to get, we're going to get to that. <laughs> but what's your relationship status now? I mean, cause you have, how is it different now? Cause you have a baby. Yes. I have a baby. I'm pregnant right now. Um, oh, you're working on yeah. baby number two. Yes, I am. So I know I heard you talk about your 21 year old son. I was salivating. Cause I was like, oh, I can't wait till I can say that sentence. Oh, I have a one-year-old, so I'm in the thick of it right now. But um, yeah, I'm married and I have a kid. I have an incredible partner. Um, we call our relationship a free relationship, which means the structure of our relationship shifts a lot and has shifted. So we're currently monogamous and probably have been um, maybe for the past, you know, since we started having kids together, maybe where we were monogamous before where I'd still have flirt buddies or people from my past or exes I still talk to. And maybe he had the same. And, um, we started our relationship off as open. So we've shifted it. I assume, you know, maybe in five years from now, we might be back and open and, um, I'm comfortable with that. Cause everything changes once you have kids. Mm-hmm. What do you, it does. what, what are you, what are you finding different? Besides no sleep. Yeah, I think uh, I, this is a stupid sentence. I just did not realize how much time it took. <laughs> it took <laughs> up. It's the stupidest sentence, but you literally have never done anything more in your life. Baby is constantly on my mind and constantly a concern. Even when you are sleeping, like you're still responsive to their needs. And so you're always paying attention and you at this age too, you have to always be in tune with them and they're a constant focal point. So that means that you you know, lose focus on yourself and on your partner. It was a really hard year for myself and my husband. And we were grateful to have people who were like, this is normal. And you guys are going through so much adjustments and insecurities. And so, um, and just confusion. I want to shift gears because you're, you, you had the show where you went out on dates and filmed <laughs> them and then would break them down. I am a terrible dater. I am a terrible dater. I don't know how to get out, out of it. I rarely get asked out on dates. I'm one of those people who can't do friends with benefits or casual sex. And I maybe in my life, I have men don't approach me. I can think of maybe half a dozen times starting in college that guys approach me. That's it. They just do not. So I don't know what fucked up vibe I'm putting out there. So I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I, I, what am I doing totally wrong? Oh, I think step one is it's a step one, but it's also step one to fix is acknowledging that you're bad at something is good, right? Cause when you can say I'm bad, then you can start to troubleshoot and move forward. Some people do the opposite where they say dating is trash and people are trash you're doing an incredible thing and being like, it's me. And I know that it's not a skill set of mine. And that's where you can start a growth mindset. Um, I also think a part of that is acknowledging that you're on a growth trajectory. Uh, but the number one piece of advice I'd probably give to you is for lack of a better term, date uglier people. Yeah. Start date people who not ugly in, in terms of like looks. I'm just saying people who you look at, you're like, oh, like that's, I don't have to be nervous around that person. Like if we're practicing something that we're not good at, we want to do it in low risk environments that allow us to practice without pressure and also not feel like a performance anxiety. I'm saying all these P's now I'm thinking of your person. Um, so that to be said that it's about learning how to flirt, which is a skill set, right? It's learning how to pick up on IOIs, which are indicators of interest. And probably a massive reason people don't approach you is because you don't know 
IOIs. And so when they're happening to you, you might look away or ignore them or, you know, slough them off as something else. And so educating yourself on what that is. So you can what are I, wait, wait, what are IOIs? So indicators of interest. So what are they? Could be uh, eye contact three times. It's somebody's pelvis pointing towards you. Somebody who mirrors you when you're talking to them so that they're like, you know, um, so if you lean, they lean as well, which is a subconscious indicator that they are attracted to you. Somebody who is asking follow-up questions, their voice gets a little lower, a little huskier. Dilated pupils is another IOI. Uh, fidgety hands, another IOI. Fidgeting with your appearance while you're talking to somebody is another IOI. And so when you become attuned to these, you go out in the world, you're like, oh, that person, you know, finds me arousing and they're excited by me. And if I'm excited by them, I talk to them, even if I'm not, because we're on a policy of just practicing, I talk to that person and I practice back and I mirror what they're doing and I see what the reaction is that I get back. So it's an education gap that you have to fill in for yourself. And again, like I said, practicing in low risk environments that allows you to build up your confidence. So you say, I'm a great dater. And that's when you go after the people that you're like, that's who I want to date. Because I literally, nobody ever approaches me. So I figure I'm giving off some sort of funky vibe. And this is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. You're famous and you look luxurious and- there's probably an, a million reasons. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not that you're not attractive. You know, it's a hundred percent not that. It's maybe you're not sending out attractive vibes, or you're not. Um, there was actually I pick up artistry is this art form that men can go to where they learn how to approach women because this is how hard this skill is. So men have the brunt of the responsibility of approaching women. Many men have no idea how to do that. And they're terrified by that. So they go into these communities. Now there's taboo issues with the pickup artistry communities, but the heart of it all, it's just men who are like, I'm attracted to people and I like them, but I don't want to, I don't know how to approach them. And his pickup artist coach said to me that he was working with a Navy SEAL who said, like, I have run into open enemy fire before head on with little equipment. And I find that much less terrifying than the thought of approaching a woman I find attractive. And when you hear that, that you're like, it's, it's scary for both individuals. And if somebody is not reciprocating um, or is not sending you signals that they're open to that, it can be even more frightening. Um, And then again, you also have fame where people might recognize you and it's even more intimidating. So it's, you breaking down those walls, one or two, being the initiator. I'm a huge fan. My husband, I picked him up. Really? Uh, X, yeah. It, I took, I was slow with it. You know, I wasn't speedy. I, it took me a year after I met him to actually meet up with them, but I was definitely driving the connection forward, like at a pace I felt comfortable at. But nonetheless, I used to believe that women shouldn't, you know, do the approaching. But I was like, what kind of, ass backwards way of that is thinking that something as important to me as intimacy, where this could be a massive component to my health, well-being, and my feelings of my own legacy. I'm in the passenger seat of that. I can see somebody who I think could be a great fit and I'm going to let them walk away because I wasn't supposed to talk to them first. So I changed my mindset on that. And then a lot changed from there. Yeah. I got ghosted for the first time. Oh, tell me about it. Was it, I've been ghosted. It it was, it makes you feel awful. Yeah. And I, and I thought I was dating ugly (laughs) and I still got ghosted to use your verbiage. 
Yeah. Well, I think maybe then you should write back, like, look, this was an opportunity for me to learn anyways. You were just a learning tool. So let's just close this out. What did I do wrong? What can I do differently? Uh, they obviously don't have the capacity to answer that question. If they ghosted, they're not emotionally intelligent enough to do so. So I wouldn't waste my time with that. I'm just joking. But nonetheless, I mean, that happens. I think you can just one reference back to think like, what might I have done? Did I disclose too much too soon? Not enough. Um, was I not open enough to like their advances for intimacy? Was I too unavailable? Was I too available? You, you just troubleshoot for yourself. That's why kind of learning about like mm-hmm. the art of a, a seduction and attraction, mm-hmm. it just allows you to troubleshoot for yourself, which is a huge tool that I use all the time in general. I get ghosted in business all the time and I get ghosted period. So then I have to be like, oh, I did make that one really vulgar joke. <laughs> but don't you think that we become too difficult on ourselves and it's, we, we should be in more of a, you don't want me fuck off kind of mindset. I think if it's not, a, I mean, intimacy is so important to me and connections are so important to me. It's obviously the basis of my job that I care enough to make this a hyper focus area of mine. I do not care about cooking at all. It's a part of livelihood and thriving, but I'm just checked out and I'm like, I'm not going to be hard on myself. I don't care if I'm the mom who like doesn't know how to puree food. That's just not my thing. So I think we all pick our areas that we prioritize. Um, so yeah, if you feel like the the cost of me having to invest and in get getting better at this is going to be too much of a price to pay for what my idea of wellness is, then you say, no, not everyone's going to be great at everything. But to me, I mean, obviously I talk about this for a living. I think it's worth the work. You, it, your show where you took people, where you went on dates, what are you, yes. you also talked about how to seduce someone. Yes. If I should ever find myself in this lifetime, in some sort of a relationship, what are the steps? Okay, so this is actually based on the book, The Art of Seduction by Robert Greene, which I loved this book because I found it was so empowering because let me just shoot it at you. When you hear the word seduction, what comes to mind? Sex. Right, like is there Desire. a person, is there a vision of an individual that you're like, this is what seduction looks like? No, because I normally, this is so horrible. When someone's being overtly like that, I get the giggles. <laughs> which is not a good trait. No, it's actually perfect to this because the art of seduction is basically saying there's nine different ways of seducing, which seducing is just drawing somebody in and making them want to come back for more, boiled down. And we all think of Marilyn Monroe and Rihanna. We think of these like classically sexy people as being seductive and everybody else is a paper bag walking around. But the truth is, is that you could be seductive by being, which my favorite one is being the natural, not the natural, excuse me, um, being the ideal lover. And the ideal lover is somebody who speaks to you based on your potential, not on who you are. So I find out what really matters to you, right? Like if you're like, oh, I really want to write a book. And I remember that next time I see you, I'm like, hey, what's up, author? How are you doing? You know, is that bookshelf filled with your name at the back of it yet? You're so great at speaking. You're so, you have such wisdom. I love your stories. When is your book coming out? And all of a sudden in me, you're a reflection of the highest potential of yourself. And you love being around me because I remind you of that. That's seductive. Humor is seductive. Being the life of the party. Everybody wants to be with the person who's lighting up the room. Like that's who I came with. The one who like everyone's crowding around and listening to their jokes and going crazy. Like that's my person. 
being the natural, which, you know, as I have a one-year-old, I reflect on this a lot of my daughter is literally so disconnected from shame and approval. Like she makes faces, not thinking like, is this cool? Is this interesting? Is this going to make you laugh? She does things, obviously, you know, they're probably not societally correct. You know, she goes around licking floors and stuff, but the natural means like we're so disc, we're so conditioned to behave in a certain way and to be the good person and to make the right expressions and say the right things. When you're around somebody who can disconnect from that, you're like, oh, that's intoxicating. So it's finding what your seduction style is and really dialing into that. And to your point, knowing what turns you on. And for you, it's not the, how are you doing? So good to meet you. It's not your thing. No, I get, I get stupid and giggly. (laughs) (laughs) And about your daughter licking floors, don't worry, that'll pass. Maybe buy her a salt lick. I don't know. Okay. That's interesting. You know what? She's obsessed with eating rocks. And I'm like, is there some dietary issue that I'm not understanding? Does she have pika? Because yeah, she really loves putting rocks in her mouth. That's interesting. I don't, I didn't, I I haven't heard that one, but I'm not surprised because all little ones do strange things, (laughs) you know, my son liked to roll. So I I don't, I don't know. You know, he would just roll. I'm like, all right, (laughs) (laughs) roll away. For all the fun you have, you do a lot of important work. You're on the national, I'm making sure I got this right. That's why I'm looking. You're on the National Coalition for Sexual Health, an ambassador for AIDS Healthcare Foundation. You're a part of womenshealthcare.gov advisory board. You really give back of your expertise. Yeah, I picture myself as like a bridge person. Uh, I'm whenever I'm on these boards around these people, I got to be on a a board, um, a sexual health advisory board with Dr. Joycelyn elders, who is like a historian when it comes to sexual rights, just women's, uh, health advancements period. She's like in her nineties, maybe a hundred at this point, but I'm constantly surrounding myself with people who are way smarter than me, way more qualified, have way more information. And I know that you know, I'm Dr. Ruth meets Rihanna. So I'm somewhere in the middle there of being somebody who tells interesting stories and seduces and engages and attracts people. Um, but I just, I need to be attached to people who are much smarter than me to ensure that I'm providing the most pertinent information possible. So I still think of those things as, as fun. And um, yeah, it's fun once in a while to remind yourself that you're not that bright. And th- that's what those boards are for. <laughs> What's the most surprising thing you've discovered through your philanthropic work? Oh, that there's just literally never, the learning never stops. It's fascinating to me because obviously we relegate sex education to like two weeks in school or, you know, a couple of semesters in high school or people will, you know, in their adult years are not learning about it. And they're like, well, I did this or in college, I did that. I'm like, man, I have been doing this for, you know, 36 years and I'm on boards of people who are doing it for 90 years. And there's still new information that they don't know. We're still learning and finding things out. They're discovering new spots all the time, right? Like new arousal spots and ways of orgasming. And it's a ton's nuts because it's the same body we've had for a million years. So the number one thing is that this is an area you have to continuously be curious about. I mean, have to is the wrong term because we get to pick and choose in life where we prioritize, but if you want to say that you are, your intimacy is your superpower, you know, there's, there's no finite amount of time that's going to get you there. That's really interesting because, you know, women's empowerment has become such a big topic in the last four years. Ah, that's fair. Five years. 
Mm. Do you feel like you're going to be able, and you have such a big audience, what is the takeaway? What, if you're speaking to a group of college freshman girls, what is the one, what is the most important one lesson you would like them to take away? I think in a Western society, we're taught that this is a last priority area of focus, like educate yourself, become independent, love yourself, and then focus on this part of your life, right? Like even that sex is a hobby. It's not like an intrinsic part of well-being. And as somebody who has done it that way, you know, did not prioritize. And now somebody who does, it literally has transformed every single part of my life. I feel like I'm a better mom if my sex life is in check. I feel like I am better uh, Starbucks lineup person. Uh, if I feel my intimate connections are strong and it, you know, sociologically two thirds of our happiness, like according to studies is based on our intimate relationships. And that's one third on all the other things that we're told is really, really important. So don't let anybody tell you that like, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, if you feel like this could be something meaningful for you that transforms your life, like I want to affirm to you, it can. And also everybody should be their own sex expert. Everybody should be a relationship expert. It is such a confusing thing to me when people are like, how did you come up with this career? Like, how did you get here? It's not an uncommon, crazy thought. It's like a really big, basic part of the human existence. And we should all care to know about it. What do you have going on next? Not that you don't have enough happening. You know what? I'm just like you. I'm making a podcast. That's my biggest joy because maybe similar to you as well. Like I've worked on so many other people's projects and told the stories that they were telling and brought my perspective to them. But this podcast is my stories and my perspective and people that I I would love to have you as a guest, actually. It's a topical podcast. So it's about your personal experience. And I build an episode around you. This week, I'm talking to Rachel Lindsay, who's a bachelorette. Mm -hmm. And the episode is called Boss in the Streets and Meh in the Sheets. (laughs) It's about women who are like, I don't care about being good at sex. I'm doing everything else right. I don't care about being a porn star. And I loved that perspective and dialogue. So we made an episode about it. Well, I will do your show anytime. Anytime. It would be um, something about like, I don't want to live like a monk, but I am. (laughs) Not by choice. (laughs) It can be, wow, you're a challenge. (laughs) <laughs> by Shan Food Tramp. Thank My you. biggest challenge. You're the yet. volcano. Oh. Volcanoes are necessary for the planet. So that's what oh, you good. Are. I'm 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 more of a dormant volcano <laughs> at this point. You are brilliant. Thank I am you. so excited that you took the time to talk to us. Shan Boudram, everyone needs to run out, listen to the podcast, buy the books, pull up the YouTube show, whatever you need to do. I am blown away by you. Thank you so much. 